I'm here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. We're broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Rocket City Trash Panda's pay is going to double thanks to the union. Madison City Council updates. Labor is winning in Michigan. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today... We've got a packed show, so I don't think we're going to be opening up the phone lines, but you can give us a text at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also send us a voicemail throughout the week or a text message throughout the week, and we might respond or play your voicemail on the air on the next show. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online, particularly at our website, tvlr.fm, where we are coming out with new stuff every single day, tvlr.fm. You're going to want to make sure to bookmark that. Also, sign up to our daily newsletter. Monday through Thursday, we send out a newsletter with all of the new Valley Labor Report content as well as, uh, you know, links to our merch. Um, I'm thinking about adding a what we are reading section so that y'all can see uh, what we what we're checking out throughout the week as well and maybe uh, lift up some uh, some other projects. Uh, so you can do that. Sign up for our newsletter at tvlr.fm slash contact in the message box. Just tell us, hey, I want to be on the daily newsletter or if you only want it once per week, Tell us you want to be on the weekly newsletter. We can accommodate both of those things. You can also find us, obviously, on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, we're going to be putting out, uh, creating an Instagram account here soon, but we haven't yet. Haven't yet, but we're going to get to that. Uh, so anywhere you find anything online, we're there. The Valley Labor Report. Just search for us. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor then uh, or make a one-time donation, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. You can buy our merch. We ordered about 20 of the Good Things State Tees to have as a uh, to have as a in stock, you know, we can't unfortunately, even though I think that they're really cool and I think that once they come out more people's going to want them, we can't afford to, you know, just have a whole bunch of stuff just in my closet, right? Cuz <laughs> you know, I mean, for one it costs money and then also I don't have the office space cuz I have a small apartment. So um 
Yeah, so we've got 20 of those in stock. You can buy that at our website, tvlr.fm slash store. If you're a member of a union, then uh, think about getting your local to sponsor the show as well. You can reach out to me for more details on that. We could not do the show without our union sponsors. Absolutely. Thank you to all of those and to all of those who are sure to come. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program today belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. As most of you know, we are not media professionals, just a few diehard unionists who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. We want to thank everyone for tuning in, whether you are a loyal fan here, again, as always, or you're a first-time listener. We really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it is April 1st. Um, despite that, we have no hijinks or gimmicks planned for today. It really snuck Not up on today. us. today. Uh, really snuck up on us um, because I had been, I had in my head maybe, and, and maybe we can do this for like Halloween or April Fool's Day next year, um, but I think it would be very funny to do like a, um, do like a mock financial management thing <laughs> like the show that comes on before us in the radio we could just do a mock thing like that or like a right-wing radio kind of thing but i think because we're bosses or i think we're because we're unionists right it would be more funny you know it would be funny to do like a mock right-wing radio thing but it would be more kind of on brand to do one of those like uh business type things right you know oh yeah hustle and grind you know adam you're always getting these like business newsletters for some reason i think you you read you read those like i read uh like i listen to right wing radio yeah absolutely um, absolutely gotta do a little opposition research sometimes yeah so i think that would be fun uh let's make a mental note of that all right, that sounds like a plan. Uh, <laughs> I know originally we we planned to have some politicians on for the April first episode, which would have been uh, on brand uh, for the day. Certainly would have been foolish. Uh, so, but instead, we're just uh, we're talking the good news of unions today. That's right. That's right. Speaking of good news, folks, Rocket City Trash Pandas players will be making more than double. During this baseball season. That's right. Their pay is going to double. Their pay is going to double. Rocket City Trash Pandas players' pay will double this season. Uh, that is if they uh, ratify the collective bargaining agreement negotiated uh, by their union that they just won in September. The agreement is for five years. It's a tentative agreement. It is now... Off to the membership for a membership ratification vote uh, with the 5,000 minor league baseball players who are uh, now members of the union. The biggest thing is really the wages. The biggest thing is, is really the wages in this agreement. Um, and across, but across all levels of the minor leagues, pay is going to be more than doubling. So let's take a look at this. From uh, in the complex league, which I had never, I don't, I don't, that's rookie ball is, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly what that means, but the complex league, 
their pay is going to go from $4,800 a year, which is wild, think about that, to $19,800 a year. Still not a whole lot, uh, but you're getting a lot closer to, you know, this job is something that is kind of sustainable. You know, at the rookie league, you're still, you know, it's kind of, I think, expected that you're going to be working a second job. Um, but it's, you know, from 5,000 to 20,000, a four, a, a quadrupling in that case. That's a huge, that's huge, right? Absolutely. In the low A's, pay is going from 11,000 to $26,200 a year. In the high A's, it's going to be going from 11000 to $27,300 a year, uh, which is, again, not enough, I don't think. And that's my issue with having a five-year agreement is, you know, this is their first contract. So, obviously, hopefully, the next one's going to be better. I just hate they're going to have to wait for five years to get to the next one. Uh, the double A's, which is what Rocket City Trash Pandas is. Rocket City Trans Trash Pandas is the double A minor league affiliate, is a double league Double A minor league affiliate of the Angels. Uh, their pay is going to be going from $13,800 a year to $30,250 a year. This is some $30,000 a year is you're getting pretty close to, you know, this is, uh, this is a reasonable pay, I think. You know, I think I would be, you know, the, the USFL, the basically the minor league football uh, one of the minor spring football leagues, uh, their pay is 55000 in their newly negotiated union contract. Um, so I think something like that really should be the goal. But, uh, you know, um, still a big improvement. And then finally in the AAAs, it's going from $17,500 a year to $35,800 a year. Uh, so like I said, the pay is really the biggest thing. And that's, you know, the biggest thing that the, the baseball players were telling folks, you know, when that, when they would be asked about, oh, you know, why are you unionizing? That's why. And so, um, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, major league baseball also agreed during the contract not to reduce minor league affiliates from the current 120. That's very significant. Yes, that is very significant. Now there are going to be so that's the minor league affiliates there's going to be no less teams over the course of this contract. There are going to be very few more players. I in that the max that they could have now I think is 190 and the max under this contract is going to be 180. So there will potentially be some, uh, like a couple here and there folks that, uh, uh, positions on the teams that aren't going to be available, but you know, I think overall it's, it's a, a good thing. Also, most players will be guaranteed housing, housing and players at double A and triple A will be given a single room as opposed to having to bunk together. Players at low A and high A will have the option of exchanging club housing for a stipend. The domestic violence and drug policies will be covered by the union agreement as well. And players who sign for the first time at 19 or older can become minor league free agents after six seasons instead of seven. Minor league players will also receive four weeks of retroactive spring training pay for this year. They'll get 625 weekly for spring training and off-season training camp and 250 weekly for off-season workouts at home. So, you know, like I said, this is, it's a huge difference from what they were working with 
uh, before. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this. I think that it's going to make the minor leagues a lot more sustainable. Uh, I'm obviously, being in Huntsville, a fan of the Trash Pandas, um, I go to games fairly regularly. And I'm excited to know that, uh, you know, they're going to be making significantly more than they made last year. So, And it's always good as union folks to be able to support other union folks, right? And now, uh, as I mentioned with XFL and USFL, how, how cool it is to cheer on those brothers out there knowing they have a union contract. And it's the same here with the Rocket City Trash Pandas, the Birmingham Barons. And the rest of the minor league teams. So definitely good news to hear this morning. Yeah, and it's worth remembering what they faced, right? They were legally exempted uh, from minimum wage laws by a law passed in 2018 under Trump. Uh, and many of them, like I, like I just said, made less than $12,000 a year. And when you're doing a professional sport, even if it's in the minor leagues, that requires really kind of a full-time level dedication to practicing, training, working out, all of this all of this type of stuff. And so the time that you can spend doing a second job is really limited. And they provide a lot of entertainment for folks. And, you know, if this is a, if this is a thing that we are going to be willing as consumers to spend money on, then the people who put it on for us really should be compensated well. Um, especially when you consider the owners, you know, millionaires and billionaires, you know, for, for literally just owning, right? The quintessential, the, the, the archetypal uh, business owner, you know, who works hard and kind of comes from the bottom up and has a small business and, and works longer than his employees. That's not the case with, with uh, uh, sports leagues, right? They're literally just owners for owning, whereas all these people are doing lots of work. It's pretty insane, the system. Uh, they really, you know, preyed on people's dreams. And Adam, you know, you remembered uh, working in a, in a restaurant and talking to, you know, some of the Stars players back in the day, right? Oh, yeah. About uh, stuff that they faced. Yeah, I, I worked for a little while uh, at one of the restaurants that was at the Joe Davis Stadium back when we had the Huntsville Stars. And uh, yeah, I got a chance to, to talk to some of the players. And if I remember right, they were staying four to an apartment. Uh, mm. And these were not like big, luxurious apartments either. <laughs> right. They were pretty much, you know, the, one of the cheapest complexes in South Huntsville, uh, fairly close to the to the stadium. So, uh, yeah, they were struggling. They they were struggling. Uh, it was very obvious they were living, you know, like like kids basically mm -hmm. having to, you know, um, help each other out, living off ramen noodles and and uh, you know, staying for an apartment. So. You know, to hear that there there's improvement on housing, there's improvement with pay, I think that's significant because, like you said, they they prey on folks' dreams. Mm -hmm. So many young folks have a dream to play professional sports, and we know the reality is most will will, will not make it. Right. Uh, but that opportunity is kind of dangled out for so many uh, you know young men and women out there in the sporting leagues. It's dangled and uh, you know it's taken advantage of, and so. I think through collective organization, these workers, like any other worker, can can have a better existence and a better uh, salary and better working conditions for themselves and for their families. Absolutely. Yeah, really excited about that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the next story, though. We have our regular Madison City Council update segment. Tristan Gilbert is on the line, right, Adam? That's right. Tristan Gilbert is on the line. He is our uh, resident Madison City Council watcher. Tristan, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I've got a lot to talk about today, so feel free to help me stay on track. 
Yeah, good morning. Let's just jump into it. All right. So you watch enough of these meetings, you start to notice some trends. So I'm mainly going to talk about three things today. There's a handful of political action groups in Madison to know about, to mm -hmm. be aware of. Um, there's a couple of locally relevant conspiracy theories. Uh, that's going to be either fun or horrible, depending on your mood. <laughs> and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about transparency and the decline and, I guess, resurgence of local news and whose job it is to get information out to the public. Um, Absolutely. Before I get into it, I'll go ahead and knock out some headlines. Uh, Madison has set a date for the special election concerning what the form of government is going to be in the future. Um, so that's going to be the vote between the council manager form of government and the current council mayor form of government. That's going to be Tuesday, May 9th, uh, between 7 and 7 a.m., 7 p.m. at your usual polling places. So if you live in Madison, write it down, Tuesday, May 9th. Um, there's going to be an Easter egg hunt on the 8th, if that's your thing. Uh, there's more information on the city website for that. And there are still some job postings available for the Police Citizens Advisory Board. Uh, that's the citizens board that has a say in how the police department does their thing. So if you have concerns about the way police are, which you probably do if you're paying any attention these days, um, districts two, four, and six are open for applications until April 12th. Okay, thank you for that. Awesome. Yeah. Any comments before I move into the meat? Uh, I just encourage people to take advantage of that committee and and, and put their application in 100%. Okay. So uh, to start off with, there are three uh, political action groups in Madison that show up and are represented at the council meetings. Uh, the first one is I Vote Madison. Uh, they are a voter information and civic engagement focused group. Uh, they're the ones who are responsible for uploading a lot of the council streams to YouTube. So any clips that we show later, you can thank them for. Uh, they take a pretty neutral stance on uh, vote on the various issues. They just want to get as many people engaged and information out as possible. Uh, that doesn't mean they're without enemies, as we'll see in the conspiracy theory section. Uh, their stated values are promoting transparency and accessibility, filling resource gaps, fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion. I keep that one in mind for later. Uh, transcending partisan polarization and encouraging dialogue free of divisive language. So pretty, um, pretty agreeable stuff there, right? One would think. <laughs> Our second group of note who we've talked about before is Madison Forward. Uh, they were the ones who went and got the petition signatures uh, for holding this vote to transition the government. Uh, they took that to the probate judge, and he's the one who issued the order to the city to hold the special election. Um, they came out of a committee that the mayor designated in 2021 uh, to address the city's growth and what the, and what the government could do to, uh, to sort of handle that as it continued, because the city has grown uh, just a huge amount in the last uh, in the last several years. Um, their their website has some of that information. I uh, lost the link for that at the moment, but um, it's something like over a hundred percent. The city's just uh, ballooned upward. Wow. Um, and the the judges that they talked to and and uh, got to order this election are Judge Barger and Judge Woodruff. I don't know anything about them. Uh, if that means anything to anybody else. Uh, that that's great. Uh, I Bar I've, uh, Barger is just some uh, 
uh, lore for everybody. He is the guy who, back in 2018 or something, he allowed a lawsuit to go forward of this guy who was suing a former partner for uh, her getting an abortion. And he allowed that to go through, despite being a probate judge, <laughs> because he said that fetuses are humans, human life. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, I guess. <laughs> uh, the uh, third group I want to talk about is a little bit newer. They call themselves Don't Mess With Madison. Uh, they formed in January specifically to oppose the potential transition to the council manager form of government. Um, I read one of their blogs where they were arguing that the uh, that losing the mayor's position would lose uh, the equivalent of four votes in veto power. And I think there's a, an interesting discussion about that. It's uh, that the way they phrased it in their blog was that uh, like we are losing the equivalent of four votes of veto power. I want to know who we is mm. in that statement. And whether or not uh, anybody thinks that if the veto is equivalent to four votes, does that make it more or less democratic? Does it balance power or does it put a lot more power into one person's hands? Right, right. Um, and despite being a uh, grassroots uh, supposedly organization, they tried to convince the council not to uh, set a date to hold the special election. Um, they, they seem to not... Uh, trust their fellow city folks, uh, citizens very well. Um, and they, I believe they recently filed a lawsuit against uh, Terry Johnson of Madison Forward, who we talked about a little bit last time I was here. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about them. I understand some of their voiced concerns. I do not trust their motivation because a lot of the conspiracy theories we're about to get into are coming from their mm -hmm. side of things. Do you have any questions, comments? I don't. I don't. Okay, well, um, I tried to provide some clips for some of the uh, some of the conspiracy theories that we're seeing floating around. I have a little bit of uh, research info about those. Um, yeah, you want to go ahead and play this one from Elizabeth? Yeah, so she is the chief blogger for Don't Mess With Madison. So uh, this should give you an insight into her philosophy. Okay. We don't want to own nothing and be happy. We want to own homes and we want to own businesses. And your mission should be to protect these freedoms. You should work hard to protect our rights to own property and to buy and sell and go places. Madison could be a place where its citizens are known for their innovation, where there are creative small businesses. And we don't need central planners to plan that. We need you to protect our freedom to do it ourselves. Sadly, what I see more and more are barriers. We have centralized planning and government-run economic development right here in Madison. You seem to be preferring big developers and big chain businesses. I live right by town Madison, and I'm enjoying all the businesses, but as I looked at Kava, I was looking forward to Kava coming. I looked at their website to see when they're opening, and on it, it says they do unconscious bias training. So for all the big um, chains that are opening up here, you're actually restricting the opportunities of local people to have their conscience 
respected. It's promoting woke ideology, which is what the unconscious bias training means. If we have small businesses, we have freedom. Wow. I did not know central planning had uh, taken root in Madison County, Alabama. Um, nor did I know that fast food chains were, you know, bastions of woke ideology, whatever that's supposed to mean. But, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, interesting. So, okay. All right. <laughs> so, for, so be best I can tell, the whole wokeism conspiracy theory is a repackaging of the uh, cultural Marxism that you'll hear people like Jordan Peterson talk about, right. uh, which is itself a repackaging of uh, international Bolshevism, uh, which the Nazis used to kind of help consolidate power for their side. It's a lumping of all sorts of folks into a uh, category of undesirables that keep these, uh, it, it keeps the believers from having to uh, talk about who it is they're really against they they fabricate a straw man and make it seem uh make it seem like they're the ones under fire right and because the thing is like i'm sensitive to local government being uh you know on the take so to speak of big businesses and you know being overly generous to fast food chains and national franchises like that's you know so i hear what you're saying that there's some voice concerns from that crowd that that may resonate with, with citizens, but it's wrapped in this uh, bizarre conspiracy ideology. Yeah, I think the thing to really understand about wokeism is, is that when, they're, when people say woke or wokeism without a shred of irony or, you know, just a, a side eye, you know, we'll talk about, we'll talk about what the, the, um, cynical deployment of quote-unquote woke stuff but there's a lot of irony whenever we use it and a lot of you know not seriousness and and trying to lift the veil and uh unobscure things when you know because we have a critique you know she's talked about unconscious bias training and i'm i you know we have a critique of these management-led uh quote-unquote diversity trainings or whatever and we've talked about it and we've talked about it extensively and and a lot of it is really just to you know placate people's desire for justice without actually having to do anything but when whenever there's this real unironic use of the word woke or wokeism and whenever they you know sincerely attach that label to something like a mcdonald's or a cahabas right it it, it it is kind of indicative of the seriousness with which you should take the rest of their statement, which is not very much. <laughs> yeah, they they treat it like it's some very militant thing when in truth it's a incredibly watered down version to for the corporations to make as little progress as possible in almost every case, right? Right. Exactly. So, uh, so she also mentioned uh, DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion in there. Uh, there was another commenter from uh, senior citizen Bob Peters who comes on to tell us what that really means. Yeah, let's if you've got that, that one from Bob. I just wanted to point out that the reason the city manager effort came forward, I believe, was because of a group came. Uh, I vote Madison. They had a 
concerted effort to bring forward the petitions uh, for the city manager. Now, I vote Madison claims to be nonpartisan. However, they're, they want to have people on their board who are diversity, equity, and inclusion on the board. Diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion uh, tries to train the world that whites are racist. And um, this is simply untrue. Uh, anyway, it's a very partisan effort. And uh, while all people have the right to jobs and try out for jobs and work for jobs, it shouldn't be based on non-merit or skin color. Uh, our jobs should be based on the, the quality of your resume, the quality of your how hard you work. I've never heard diversity, equity, and inclusion used like as a noun. Like that's their board has those some of those. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you are deeply offended by the concept of diversity, um, that might be a reflection of something you have going on inside, deep in your heart or in your brain. I, just, just a thought. And, you know, I don't really, I don't really watch right wing news sources, uh, so I. I I don't know when this started, but I feel like this is something they've latched onto because mm -hmm. it's, again, it's watered down corporate language that a lot of companies have adopted because it's the least amount of work for them. So you see this acronym DEI popping in a lot, popping up in a lot of places. And to them, that's a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And um, Bob in that clip, uh, he was, he was a bit confused. It was Madison forward that uh, created the petition for the city manager. It wasn't, I vote Madison. Right. Um, uh, so I don't, I, I mean, uh, I, I don't know how, uh, uh, where he's getting his information. I don't want to cast any aspersions there, but, um, it, it, he was also one of the, uh, one of the people most vocally against the medical marijuana bill back mm -hmm. last fall. And his wife was chiming in with him on that too. Uh, she had a longer clip, but I know we're already out of time. So, or over time. So I only play yeah. that if you want to. Yeah, we weren't. Uh, I I wasn't able to pull that one, but I did. Um, I did listen to it, and she said, uh, you know, she mentioned her advocacy against marijuana, and she mentioned that the council doesn't know who they're dealing with, and that some of these people are members of the Democrat Socialists of America, and that's a very scary group. She says so. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I wonder. I, I wonder whose show they go on. It's a mystery. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Would, wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> there were, uh, uh, one last note of the conspiracy theories, there were a couple people talking about voting machine fraud. Uh, one of the frequent commenters loudly demanded a hand count in addition to the automatic count. Um, and, of course, the voting machine frauds uh, conspiracy was started by Donald Trump during his bid to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, there's an ongoing lawsuit uh, by, oh, what's the company that makes those? Dominion? Dominion. Is it, 
Dominion. Yeah, against that that uh, that lawyer who was saying all those crazy things. Um, so that that's here. You know, it's it's always wonderful to learn that that stuff is is local and not just on the news. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, moving on to my last point, um, there there have been a couple uh, there have been a couple people on like both and every side of this issue, including the group that just wants transparency, asking the council to stream more of their meetings, their work sessions, not just the big public uh, every, every other week council meetings. And the um, the uh, president Renee Bartlett had. Uh, she was very frustrated by some of these. Uh, if you don't want to play her clips, that's fine. I think I could summarize her argument. Um, yeah, that'd be fine. She said that in, in the past, uh, when she'd been, that she's been involved in local government for something like 15 years, uh, there were always reporters from like Huntsville Times and other local papers and news stations in the room that were doing that work. And they never, and it, of course that was before streaming. So they've never had any sort of meeting or anything to set up streaming of course lacking any lacking strong external pressure they're going to do things the way they've always done mm -hmm. so i guess the discussion there is uh, whose job is it to get that information out to the public in in a time when local journalism is sort of in decline and is what we're doing here kind of a, a reversal of that well what do you guys think that's definitely uh part of what we hope to do but certainly you know the the ability that that shows like ours would have to replicate, you know, because she talked about in her clip, um, you know, she was talking about hiring somebody or interviewing somebody and how somebody from the Huntsville Times would be there in the room, you know, taking notes for an article. Right. And that's, you know, um, that's just something that we don't have capacity for, uh, you know, and and there are, so, you know, you know, the Huntsville Times just stopped its print operation. Um, and it is really, really, and then the people that are replacing them, the people that are replacing them like right wing radio, you know, right wing radio is still doing very, very well. Um, you know, I, the, the revenue for just one of the conservative stations here is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars monthly, monthly, right? But they're not putting that into reporting. They're putting that into commentary and, um, you know, salaries for the hosts and, uh, you know, just it, it's just commentary. It's just shock jock stuff. There's no actual there's no actual, you know, reporting value there. And that, and it's really sad. Yeah, I think it would be excellent if the if the local government would set up a, a consistent streaming service, it would make right. the job of the uh, key. key keyboard amateurs like me uh taking notes on some of this stuff a bit easier but mm -hmm. lacking that i i guess uh, uh along with voting for your form of government on may 9th if anybody out there uh, has time to sit in on some work sessions and take notes um uh please every every little bit helps yeah absolutely i and i think it's so important for folks to get engaged in local government because of that lack of local journalism, uh, because I think that's true what, what she's saying, that in the past you would have reporters in these kind of rooms and these kind of meetings, but those reporters aren't there anymore. Uh, and the reporters that still exist, by and large, are not even going to those kind of meetings. Uh, and if they did go to that kind of meeting, it would probably just be to republish the press release that the government put out themselves. Okay, so there is such a deficit with journalism, uh, particularly at the local level. 
and at the local level, you can make more influence. If you show up to a school board meeting or a city council meeting or a county commission meeting and you don't normally show up, chances are you'll be noticed because there won't be that many more people in attendance who aren't required to be there for some reason or another. Uh, so there is some power among citizens at the local level if organized and harnessed you know, appropriately. Uh, but I think the work that you're doing is very important because it's it's critical that we monitor what's going on and we know what's going on, not just from the government, but also from our fellow citizens, as you pointed out, how, you know, some of these really disturbing trends in right wing media circulates all the way down, you know, from D.C. and New York and, and the airwaves to little old Madison, Alabama. And you have people showing up to their city council meeting advocating for stuff that is based on nonsense that they heard on TV or, or saw on Facebook. And so, yeah, that's it's all the more important that regular everyday people with half a brain uh, do some coordination and, and some monitoring of what's happening at the local level. Yep. Uh, Tristan, Madison City Council Watcher, appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Tristan. All right, folks, we're going to go to a break, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? 
If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets, holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words. How a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text message. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Appreciate folks that are hanging out with us in the chat on YouTube. Thank you, Strom McCallum, for the $2 super chat. Yeah. Um... And he says he was in Alabama yesterday, uh, had some good and bizarrely named uh, restaurants. So that's good. Glad to hear you enjoyed the cooking while you were here. Um, And appreciate the rest of the conversation happening down there. Uh, Also, appreciate folks watching on YouTube, on uh, Facebook. Presumably we've got Mel and Joe hanging out with us there. So, Adam, we've got some news coming out of Atlanta from your union, right? My IATSE sisters in Atlanta at the Opera House there have actually been locked in a pretty bitter struggle. Uh, and I wanted to share it with you folks this morning, uh, to kind of lift up this struggle and, and share what's happening there. So the Atlanta Opera continues to block their hair and makeup crews access to health care and retaliate against them by slashing wages, all because they sought the dignity and respect of a union. In the summer of 2021, the 100% black hair and makeup crew at the Atlanta Opera voted to join IATSE Local 798. The hope of the workers was that once a majority voted to form a union, They could collectively bargain a contract providing the employees with health insurance and retirement benefits, similar to what the musicians, stagehands, and costume and wardrobe workers who work under a union contract already have. But what the Atlanta Opera did is callous. In a cynical attempt to deny hair and makeup artists the benefits of a union, the Atlanta Opera tried to prevent workers from voting by arguing that they are independent contractors rather than employees. 
and that they don't have the right to unionize or to seek better terms for their employment. However, thankfully, the Atlanta Opera has lost that argument. The election was then held, but before the votes could be counted, the Atlanta Opera appealed to the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, in Washington, D.C., to try once again to claim that the workers were not employees. By doing so, Atlanta Opera management caused ballots cast by the crew to be impounded while the NLRB considers if these workers are even employees once again. To make matters worse, the Atlanta Opera retaliated against the crew by degrading their paying conditions, effectively denying them work at future performances, despite the fact that the venue received over $1.6 million in taxpayer funds through federal PPP loans. Atlanta Opera Hair and Makeup Artists Need Your Support Join them in telling management to respect their workers by giving them equitable treatment and counting their votes. I'll drop a link to the petition in the chat. Uh, but just this past week or so, on March 21st, uh, we had a press release from the International, from IATSE, uh, where there was an announcement that the NLRB had actually unsealed and counted the ballots. They had been impounded for nearly two years, but on Tuesday the 21st, they were counted, and the results reveal that the Atlanta Opera Hair and Makeup Artists unanimously supported, joining together under IATSE Local 798. According to President Matthew D. Loeb, the international president of IATSE, he said, quote, Today's count reaffirms what we already knew. The workers have spoken in a free and fair election, and they want a union. The Atlanta Opera's retaliatory behavior and continued legal games up to this point are an affront to democracy and to the values their institution supposedly embodies. Every worker in entertainment who wants a union deserves one. We are not leaving anyone behind the scenes behind. The unit of hair and makeup workers who requested union representation, like I said, is fully comprised of black artists. And these union-busting tactics from the Atlanta Opera are being taken to prevent these workers from exercising their rights. A March 2022 Actors' Equity Statement explains, quote, What is far more shameful is that the Atlanta Opera has denied a group of all black artists their right to organize. These employers have not only refused to acknowledge the bargaining unit's legitimacy, but retaliated against them. Such actions contradict the work of Atlanta Opera's own EDI task force, which vows to counteract bias, increase diversity, and foster an inclusive climate. All right, I'm going to pause right here because I think that's interesting that we were just mentioning DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, in the context of Madison, Alabama. And as we mentioned, many corporations and institutions have ad adopted these sorts of policies, primarily, you know, administered through their human resources department. It's something they can check off a list. They can, they can, you know, throw this out there every time they get an EEOC complaint. And here's the Atlanta Opera. They have their own task force supposed to counteract bias, increase diversity, and foster an inclusive climate. Well, how the hell is union busting against a bunch of black women increase diversity or foster an inclusive climate? would love to know the answer to that from Atlanta Opera's management. In spring 2021, employees who performed the art of hairstyling and makeup at the Atlanta Opera sought the opportunity to vote 
and they secured an election through the NLRB. But it was this continued legal maneuvering from the opera that has dragged this out for over two years now, right? They're, they're trying the misclassification argument, and that's something that has been used against workers all over this country, where there are workers who should be considered employees but are misclassified as independent contractors. And that is a tried and true method to exploit folks and to deny folks their rights. So despite the fact that the ballots were counted, it is not over yet. Uh, while the unsealing and counting of ballots is a significant step forward, these hair and makeup artists now await a final decision from the NLRB regarding their eligibility for unionization in the first place. So despite the unanimous support, it's still up in the air as to whether or not uh, these folks as to whether or not these folks will get the union that they deserve. Uh, there is a petition, as I mentioned, I'll drop a link to that in the chat for you to share and to sign. Uh, I did get just uh, yesterday a brief update that the opera has now decided to negotiate. Uh, no word yet on what that's going to look like or, you know, where things stand with that. But I did get an update uh, from one of the sisters out there that, it looked like the opera now was was willing to meet with them. So, you know, fingers crossed that uh, things are about to work out there. But uh, just real shameful behavior from the Atlanta Opera. And want to send our love and solidarity to these sisters out there doing very important work. Uh, and they deserve a union. They deserve health care. They deserve a living wage. It's not unreasonable. And especially in an in a institution that proclaims itself to be uh, working on diversity and equity and inclusion. Come on now. that And see, that is the sort of hollowness behind so many of these policies that uh, makes it all the more laughable that, you know, we're supposed to believe it's some sort of vast conspiracy. No, it's just human resources. Um, so... So, uh, sending our love to the sisters at the Atlanta Opera. Uh, I did reach out to an organizer in the area, and I'm working on trying to get uh, an interview set up with, with a couple of these folks. Uh, I think it would be great to hear their story, and uh, definitely uh, wishing them all the best, and hope they get that union, and hope they get that contract that they deserve. Absolutely. Have we got uh, Joey Andrews in the Zoom yet? Let me check here. I do believe we have Joey in the in the Zoom. Yes. All right. Great. Well, we'll go ahead and bring him on. Joey Andrews is the uh, Democratic state representative for Michigan's 38th district. He is also a former policy analyst for the Michigan AFL. Uh, Joey, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, before, obviously, I think people can can kind of guess the reason that we wanted to talk to you uh, is that there have been some huge wins for labor in Michigan. Uh, you recently repealed right to work, quote unquote, and you reinstituted prevailing wage. But, um, you know, before we get to that, can, can you speak a little bit to your own background and uh, why 
you know, why you have uh, seen unions as being so important. You know, it's not something that being a, uh, you know, being a, a lawyer, right? Not too, not too many lawyers are going to go work for the AFL, and it's certainly not where you're going to make the big bucks, right? So, you know, there's obviously some sort of uh, belief there in the power of unions. Just talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of it is um, family. Uh, my the, the major one is my grandfather on my mom's side. Uh, so my grandparents were immigrants that came over from uh, Germany at the end of World War II. And um, after my, uh, my grandfather got here, he joined the uh, Carpenters Union in Michigan, um, worked as a union carpenter for 30, 40 years almost, I think. Um, mm. But my, it allowed my grandmother, uh, who spoke kind of broken English at best uh, to be a stay-at-home mom, um, raise four kids, uh, bought a house uh, that he improved himself as a carpenter. Uh, and then the, you know, there was a tragedy that happened in the mid-80s, a little before I was born. Um, he, uh, as a result of an, an on-the-job accident that he had had a few years prior, uh, he had a brain aneurysm, died suddenly, uh, leaving my grandmother, who hadn't really, aside from some, you know, side work as a seamstress, had never worked a day in her life, um, with, you know, a house that was virtually an empty nest at this point. And uh, his union benefits uh, helped her keep her house and continue to live the life that she had enjoyed. And without his union, I think there's every possibility that uh, probability that, um, you know, she would have struggled to keep the house, um, that it would have completely disrupted our entire family. And uh, so, you know, for me, that has been kind of fundamental in how I view the labor movement and, you know, what labor does for working people. Talk to us about your work as a policy analyst for the for the AFL. What what is that? Uh, what did you do specifically? Yeah, so I I started my time at the AFL um, as an organizer before getting into the policy department. Um, fun fun fact: in the 20, uh, 2020 cycle, I was working for the Michigan Democratic Party, and um, myself and a couple other organizers uh, unionized the um, the coordinated campaign in the state. Hmm. Um, and that experience is really what drove me to work for labor because I got to see firsthand that uh, the party doesn't always live its values. Mm. Um, the minute we we announced our card signing campaign, they just went into like full blown union busting mode. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, rats in the ranks and then uh, they made contract negotiations take two months. We were almost to October before we even had a contract. Uh, and then all the things, classic thing, right? All the things they told us they couldn't afford in the contract at the end of the campaign, they just gave us, mm. you know, they couldn't put uh, healthcare through the end of the year in the contract too much money. But then once the campaign was over, they're like, yeah, you guys can have another month of healthcare, but it's on the contract. Right. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to work at the AFL after that, um, did some organizing work for them, um, before moving to the policy side. And a lot of what I did there was look at. Uh, under what you know the time was our right to work framework and some other really unfriendly labor laws that we had um, ways that we could empower local municipalities uh, and you know try to level the field as best we could with so many of these unfair laws on the books so mm -hmm. I got to spend a lot of time with um, with all of these you know little attacks on labor that the Republicans had passed for decades and uh, you know you were uh, ended up being successful during this legislative session, and so let's talk about those uh, those two in particular, and then we can go to any other any other wins that may have been as um, 
not as heavily reported on, but but I know that those are two really important ones. And that's first is the repeal of right to work. And this, you know, talk to us about about right to work. How do you see people's reaction to when they hear right to work and their conception of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, right to work has got to be one of the best messaging campaigns that the right has ever come up with. Um, as you guys are well aware, right to work has nothing to do with um, rights or working. <laughs> um, it uh, it has everything to do with preventing collective bargaining from happening effectively. Um, we we always used to nickname it uh, right to freeload, mm -hmm. um, which I think is more descriptive of what it actually does. Um, and I think that's a messaging battle we've had to fight. But I have personally found a lot of success that once once you explain to somebody that all right to work does is enable people to uh, benefit from the collective bargaining of the union and the benefits that it's achieving without having to pay for it. I think it really triggers a lot of people's fundamental fairness feelings mm -hmm. at that point. Um, it, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of Republicans who are at a baseline anti-union, but um, you explain to them what right to work does and their reaction is immediately, well, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that for, for me, you know, there's obviously that fairness bit of it, but for for me, one of the most hypocritical things about the the right to work and the crown that it's coming from is that you know this is supposedly ostensibly a you know small government type of folks that this right to work legislation typically comes from, and they're the type of people that are always going to be the ones opposing any safety regulations, any at all, um, you know. Uh, uh, limitations on the contractual authority of the employers. And what right to work actually does mechanically is it goes in between the union, the workers, and the employer and say, this is a contract provision by law that you can't agree to, right? Because in collective bargaining states, nobody from the government is saying you have to agree to a security clause, you have to agree to a you know fair pay, fair representation clause. Nobody says that from the state. That's something that the, that the workers... And the employer agree to voluntarily, right? But <laughs> but in right to work states, the government comes in and says, "No, you can't do that. That's you know that's against the law." It's really really bizarre. We have we have several other laws like that on the books, and it's it's all the same sort of thing. You know, the the party of small and local government until it's a local government's ability to set wages, until mm -hmm. it's a local government's ability to set a prevailing wage, until uh, it's the local government's ability to require paid family leave. You know. Um, th yeah, it's, it's a very hypocritical stance to take, I think, um, for, you know, just given what ostensibly, you know, they're saying their ideology is. We've had exactly the same thing happen in Alabama. We had, uh, a raise the wage campaign that was, uh, going successfully in Huntsville, uh, particularly picking up steam after Birmingham passed a higher minimum wage than the states. And then the legislature came in and shot it down and said, nope, that's illegal. You can't you can't govern what happens in your city limits. Um, really, really uh, terrible stuff. But you mentioned uh, prevailing wage and uh, during that. And so let's talk about that. We actually had on uh, somebody from the Illinois Economic Policy Institute talk about uh, a, a few months ago, talk about the effects of prevailing wage repeals over the last five years or so. And, you know, as you can imagine, it it, it wasn't exactly as uh, the defenders of the repeals 
uh, described. And so talk to us about prevailing wage, what it means and and what it means now that uh, it's going to be reinstated in the state of Michigan. A rule that requires uh, any projects that use uh, state dollars or federal dollars in the case of federal prevailing wage um, to uh, to pay a standard wage to anybody working on the project. Um, effectively, it levels the playing field uh, for both union and non-union contractors because it takes wage setting out of the bidding process. Uh, mm. And uh, as well, you now, noted, in on, state Joe. wage means non-union contractors can't even uh, can't even apply for these bids. That's what I'm. That's what I hear. for the bids because most of them um, can't uh, can't make a profit unless they're paying their way their uh, workers you know substandard wages um, oh but the government's not coming in and telling them oh you can't bid for this contract if you're not a union contractor nope nope that's huh. not in there that's a that's interesting that's interesting and, and uh interest I believe there was a, a state senator, a Republican from Indiana, that commented that the repeal of the prevailing wage law had, uh, in fact, uh, in practice, not done anything to improve um, costs of bids and uh, said that it, it, his words that it was a mistake. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's generally what you see in the data everywhere, that without prevailing wage, uh, the job costs don't go down. All that happens is workers get paid less and the contractor gets paid more. Uh, they just shift around where the profit and where the uh, where the money lands in the bid. Uh, but when you bring on low paid workers who aren't professionals in their field, um, you know, they, you end up with a lower quality of work, which over time actually increases the amount of money that the state is spending on these projects. Mm -hmm. uh, right. The data is pretty clear. Prevailing wage states uh, projects actually end up saving money over non prevailing wage states. Well, and we saw the exact same thing come out of West Virginia from Governor Jim Justice. He said that, you know, oh, we repealed prevailing wage. We, you know, uh, implemented right to work and the businesses told us they'd come and then they never did. And now he hasn't reinstituted prevailing wage. Right. But, you know, there is a recognition of of the fact that that uh, prevailing wage doesn't you know, it's not like a wasteful thing. It's something that's actually, in fact, obviously good for construction workers, but it's good for the city as well and the community. prevailing wage, the Davis-Bacon Act, mm -hmm. was uh, a Republican-led initiative uh, because wow. at the... Yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the reason, um, go figure, was the they were uh, a couple of uh, New England um, Congress people. And uh, what was happening is uh, Southern laborers were coming up into the Northeast um, and the, the contractors were, you know, paying them nothing. And they were taking all the work from local contractors uh, because they were underpaying their workers. And so they said, hey, this is an unfair practice. Um, you know, we don't mind you guys coming up and bidding on work, but you got to pay uh, you got to pay your people appropriately if you're going to do it. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, that that's the origin of prevailing wage. Um, so, if, you know, it kind of strikes you that uh, at one point Republicans found that kind of fairness important. Right. That is that is really fascinating. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's really cool to see this kind of stuff happening in, in Michigan and, you know, look, uh, longingly at, at those achievements as here in Alabama, you know, prevailing wage is gone. Obviously it's been gone. I think pro no, it was Republicans that removed it, but, um, 
and you know we, we're right to work state um union density is pretty low and uh the uh, obviously you know the 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 animus and and real bigotry towards unions and unionism is just apparent in this state um so it, it's nice to see some people seeing some success legislatively to work was always uh an odd fit for michigan i mean you know, the birthplace of the UAW and the labor movement in general. Um, Michigan's always been a labor state. And when they did uh, right to work, um, you know, at the 11th hour lame duck session in 2012, uh, the public outcry and the protests were enormous. And I mean, they they barred the Capitol. They weren't letting protesters in um, just all kinds of dirty tactics um, because they they knew that what they were doing was unpopular and right. um you know, yeah. It, so this this has been a long time coming, and the response from the public has been, I'd say, pretty overwhelmingly positive here. Well, that's great. That's great to hear. And it's also, I'll say, great to hear a a Democratic representative that that clearly you understand these issues. When I talk to Democratic legislators here, they've got you know they've got no clue. I talked to the the sta- the uh, 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 the chair of the state party about the coal miner strike and about a paper mill lockout and asked him, you know, now that you're elected state chair, what are you going to do? And he's like, oh, I didn't, you know, I no idea about these things, you know, no idea at all. Are, do you see yourself as part of a, of a party in Michigan that that is is like minded and, and similarly knowledgeable about these issues? Or, or do you find yourself kind of fighting against the current? and knowledge gap. Um, something that I think has happened in the Democratic Party since 2016 is that the the electorate um, has realigned. And in that realignment, a lot of um, suburbs that used to be formerly, you know, pretty conservative Republican have become pretty overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, with that is, you know, brought us some electoral success across the country. But um, those voters don't necessarily have, um, you know, backgrounds with organized labor. Uh, mm-hmm. They might or probably have a parent, you know, that maybe was a, a union member or a grandparent, you know, as like in my case, but they don't have a lot of direct experience. And I don't think there's a, a broad enough understanding. And I, I do think that it's incumbent upon um, those of us, you know, kind of in the movement and in general to really do good outreach and education. Because uh, I think in general, you know, most Democrats, especially elected Democrats, know that, you know, unions are important and that labor is uh, a force for good. But I think they're fuzzy on the details. Mm. Um, and the, those details are the things that let special interest groups kind of, you know, drive a wedge in and say, oh, well, you know, you're, you're going too far with this one. Why do you want to do this? You know, and they don't really know why they want to do it. Uh, and so it, I think there is that information gap and we have to do what we can to um, to close it as in my vision, you know, the, the labor movement is the way forward. I think that it's by far the, you know, of, of all the political movements out there, the greatest force of good that uh, that's existed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Representative, is there anything else going on in Michigan that uh, uh, that, you know, our listeners here in Alabama should should know about uh, as something to maybe potentially uh, replicate or even, you know, keep an eye out for? I think have been pretty effective. <clears throat> One is that um, our, our governor and um, you know our, our legislature also has uh, taken to messaging around uh, even social issues as being matters of um, of like worker and uh, workplace safety. 
Mm. Uh, so we we recently expanded our state's civil rights act to include protection for LGBTQ people. Uh, up until that be, uh, you know becomes effectively law, it's been legal in Michigan for employers to fire somebody for being gay or trans. Um, and so we we rectified that. And the message that we've sent forward is that you know, the, these social issues, these civil rights issues are uh, economic and workplace issues that people, you know, need to feel safe in their jobs, they need to feel protected in their jobs. And so, you know, repealing our abortion ban, expanding our Civil Rights Act, these aren't just matters of um, civil civil rights and social justice, these are fundamentally economic issues. Mm. Um, and then the on the second, the second thing is that we've been, you know, kind of taking a broadly holistic look at all of these anti-labor laws. So aside from repealing right to work and reinstating prevailing wage, um, we've got a bill that's been moving through to um, start to rectify restricted terms of bargaining for teachers. Um, there's a, a pretty terrible law that we've got that uh, doesn't require schools to compensate teachers if contract negotiations run past the deadline date, um, which effectively neuters teachers' ability to bargain. Um, we've got a few other bills out there to enable project labor agreements, um, get rid of those local preemption laws that I mentioned earlier, uh, and a few, I think, exciting ideas, too. Like, we're working on a tax credit for union dues, um, uh, you know, maybe taking a look at some just cause legislation. Um, I've got a, a personal goal of trying to get some form of co-determination done <laughs> in the state, but I think that's probably a long-term goal. <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of really cool ideas that we're working on, um, and, you know, I'm, I... I personally wanted Michigan to, you know, kind of embrace that labor history that it's had yeah. and act as an incubator for these ideas so that other states and, uh, you know, other groups can see what we're doing and, you know, know that it can be done and, you know, have a model and a template. Yeah, that's awesome. That is that is super, super exciting. And it's so cool knowing that, you know, there's somebody like you with these that's really thinking about this kind of stuff that, that's in the house there. Have you... Um, are, are you aware of the um, wh what they called in the Labor Party in the UK, the right of first refusal? Are you aware of any of those proposals? Um, I don't think there's anything in the works yet on that, um, but there should be. <laughs> so that's a yes. good point. Yeah, well, I uh, would love to see, uh, you know, something like that go through. I know here in here in Alabama, you know, we've had this issue uh, with child labor at, at, at the Hyundai suppliers all across the state. I mean, there's been four that have been that have been shown to have been utilizing child labor and then six more just in the state. I don't know how there are 10 Hyundai manufacturers in the state of Alabama. It's bizarre. But, you know, <laughs> how many of these places do we need? But there are six more under investigation for child labor. And so one of the things that Hyundai is doing is they're going to be divesting from these suppliers. Some of them were wholly owned subsidiaries, some of them were majority owned, and they're going to be divesting their shares from it. And so it seems obvious to me that the workers should have the first right to refuse, that, that somebody's going to be buying this. Somebody's going to be buying these suppliers, and it ought to be Alabama's workers, the people who made the who 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 made these factories run, they should get a shot to run it before some private equity group from New York or DC uh, comes and buys it and cuts jobs and cuts wages and does all these things to uh, you know that we see these private equity firms do all the time, you know Alabama workers should get a shot a shot at running it and the government should give them a loan, but obviously that's not going to happen and and probably what will happen is that there will be a private equity firm buy it and it's going to get even worse. Maybe there won't be any child labor, but the working conditions are almost certain to get even worse. And it's just well, and, really and they'll, sad. They'll close, 
they'll close some of the factories they'll consolidate yeah. operations that's always what happens yeah um you know so, something kind of um on the same vein is that we, we've been working on banning non-compete clauses mm. um very similar workforce issue that you see when uh you know, company comes in and takes over and lays off workforce is that uh, these non-compete clauses prevent people from re-entering the workforce, um, often forces them out of their community and sometimes out of the state, uh, depending on the industry that you're in because of how they're worded. And they've gotten, I think, more uh, broadly used by industries that really have no right using them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing when you're using a non, uh, non-compete clause to protect some kind of trade secret, another thing altogether when it's like a restaurant, right? <laughs> um, right. you know, which there are people that, that don't believe that, that, you know, Jimmy John's had a non-complete compete clause and that it, it's true. Restaurants do have, some of them have non-compete clauses. It's just totally bizarre. We had somebody in the chat ask, uh, what is code co-determination? Joey, can you explain that for folks? Yeah. Um, uh, try to. 10,000 foot view that it's, it's a pretty uh, <laughs> large framework. But uh, so essentially what co-determination does is it gives workers a voice in the operations of the companies. It can take a few different forms. Um, there's shop floor co-determination where you have uh, workers taking a direct role in like and how safety standards are implemented um, and how certain workplace procedures are done. Uh, the broader form of co-determination involves giving uh, labor unions or um, you know workers councils uh, a seat on the boards of these companies. Uh, it's pretty widely practiced in most European countries. Um, Germany has a pretty aggressive form of co-determination uh, where most boards have multiple members from the trade unions sitting on them. Mm. Uh, and essentially, the goal of co-determination is not necessarily to totally wrest power from the company, but to give workers a say in what happens. Um, mm. And what in practice ends up happening is it creates a more um, a more copacetic working uh, relationship between management and the trades unions because the the workers feel like they have a voice in hiring and firing decisions and layoffs in you know expansions, that sort of thing. And uh, on the flip side, the board uh, gets a direct kind of line into what's going on on the floor and what the workers are experiencing. Uh, and so a lot of the uh, if you if you talk to a lot of um, manufacturers and you come to countries like Germany and the Netherlands, they'll actually tell you that they think, um, you know, co-determination has been a net uh, boost for productivity and their relationships with their their trade unions, that sort of thing. Um, we have. Um, uh, a strange prohibition in the Taft-Hartley Act against um, workers' councils. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a well-intentioned prohibition, I think, that was initially meant to stop uh, employers from creating like pseudo-unions that weren't real unions to prevent actual uh, labor organizing. But the way it's worded in practice is it just sort of prohibits workers' councils. Um, but we think that there's some room to work around it, at least to do some of that board-level co-determination and some of the shop floor implementation sorts of things. Um, but it, it I think, is one of those things that could be pretty trans American labor movement if we could get it to catch on. Absolutely. So you're saying that there may be some benefit to having an actual Starbucks worker seated in the boardroom instead of an empty chair there. That's the the funny thing is, in most of the rest of the world, the uh, the CEOs and board agree with that. That mm -hmm. there is value in that, and that you want to have a good working relationship with your trades union. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine because of how hostile our relationships are with our, you know, in, in the United States. But um, it turns out you can actually 
have a, a good working relationship. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, the there uh, one of the big, and we saw this at, at the Starbucks hearing uh, last week. One of the criticisms was like, "Oh, unions are too antagonistic," and you know, unions can be antagonistic, and I think. Uh, to a certain extent, they really ought to be, right? But uh, unions are clearly, especially in the American context, they would love to not be antagonistic. And how do I know that? We can look at the last 50 years of American labor history <laughs> to, to point to, to say that unions are would love to not be antagonistic. But, you know, when we're not, uh, you know, the owning class here in this country just takes and takes and takes and takes. So, you know, there's there's reason for some amount of antagonism there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's all about power dynamics, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. is the core of what this is about. Unions exist to balance power dynamics. And, um, you know, I, I tell everybody all the time when, you know, when strikes and stuff come up, nobody wants to be on strike. Workers right. don't want to be on strike. Management doesn't want to strike. You know, no one wins when there's a strike. Um, but a strike is, a, it, you know, it's it's sort of like a declaration of war. You know, it's diplomacy by other means. We, we've tried negotiating. We've tried working things out peacefully. And uh, that didn't work. So now we're shutting things down until, you know, we, we get good faith negotiations again. Um, and to, I think to outside observers, it looks like, you know, antagonism and agitating. But um, if you don't do it, if that, you know, if those options aren't on the table, if the, you know, that the ability to be antagonistic isn't there, um, then, you know, capital will trample over labor. Right. Joey Andrews, uh, representative for the uh, 38th House District in the state of Michigan. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I've really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. Uh, if, you ever, if you guys ever want to chat again, happy to do it. Absolutely. Probably will. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, folks, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break really quick, and we'll be right back to wrap this thing up. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text message at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Last thing that we are going to get to today is that um, those bad things that you wanted to say about your previous job, well, you're now free to say them, according to NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo. She sent a memo to regional offices of the National Labor Relations Board addressing uh, what had been a large question resulting from a previous ruling about non-disclosure agreements. They had uh, made a previous ruling about the uh, uh, the non-disparagement agreements. And so the question was, does it retroactively void broad non-disparagement agreements 
that were designed or that were signed prior to the February ruling. So there was a ruling in February, but there was some question about, hey, does it apply to uh, 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 contracts that were signed in the past? Does it invalidate them if they were signed in the past? And the answer is that, yes, it does. Uh, Bruzo wrote that the decision, in fact, does have, quote, retroactive application, meaning that already signed and, quote, overly broad non-disparagement clauses are no longer considered valid by the National Labor Relations Board. Employers who attempt to continue to enforce those illegal severance clauses could face trouble from the National Labor Relations Board, according to Vice. So while the NLRB typically has a six-month statute of limitations for labor violations, businesses who attempt to enforce illegal parts of an older severance agreements would be committing a contemporary violation and subject to enforcement. Additionally, Abruzzo provided clarification around what non-disparagement and confidentiality clauses may still be considered legal. Those provisions must be narrowly tailored, quote-unquote. In the case of confidentiality, the cause must serve to keep proprietary trade information secret, quote, for a period of time based on legitimate business justifications. That might be considered lawful, but it must not have a, quote, chilling effect that precludes employees from assisting others or communicating with the media, a union, or third parties. So, you know, narrowly tailored. If there's a legitimate, you know, there's this trade secret that, you know, is a secret sauce for your company, you can tell your former employees, okay, you can't go spreading this around. But just general non-disparagement clauses about your working conditions or the pay that you received or the interactions between you and your employer, too broad, that's illegal, it is no longer valid. With regards to non-disparagement, Abruzzo similarly said that the provision must not only be both narrowly tailored and justified, but it is limited to statements by an employee that fit the legal definition of defamation, meaning they are purposely and maliciously untrue. That mm. is the only kind of non-disparagement, <clears throat> that is the only kind of disparagement that could still be, um, you still couldn't do under an old agreement, right? You can't legally defame somebody. You cannot purposely and maliciously tell a lie about your former employer which I think that a lot of us, uh, we don't have to make up lies <laughs> to, to uh, badmouth our former bosses. Yeah, so. some of us uh, have stories of our own. Yeah. And uh, boy, doesn't it feel good knowing uh, you've gotten the green light to go there tell go. that story. There you go. So uh, next week we can open up the phone lines and you can give us a call at 844-899-TVLR and tell us your bad boss stories. Now that uh, Jennifer Abruzzo has freed you from the shackles of your NDA. We look forward to hearing those stories. Absolutely. Always send those in. Yep, yep. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, we've got a few, um, we, we've got just a few plugs that we wanted to hit. And then we're going to be heading into overtime. So make sure that if you're listening to us on the radio, you find us online, Facebook, YouTube. We're going to continue streaming for another hour and a half. We have uh, some more guests coming on uh, from the International Association of Machinists talking about some cool stuff. And then we're going to be spending a lot of time reacting to this uh, Starbucks hearing. So going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned for that. Um, but the ACLU of Alabama is holding a Work the Ledge virtual session on Monday, April the 10th at 6 p.m. 
It's a legislative advocacy training program for everyday Alabamians who want to learn and engage in Alabama's legislative process. And that session's topic is prisons and the death penalty. Uh, Alabama Arise is having a lobby day on April 11th, and you can register online. Register at alarise.org slash 2023 legislative day as seating is limited. Arise members will, g- will gather for a policy briefing and lunch, followed by a news conference on the steps of the Alabama State House, followed by legislative visit- visits and finishing with a membership meeting. If you're interested in going to Montgomery, Uh, to talk to representatives. This is a great opportunity. And speaking of lobby days, the Alabama AFL is conducting their lobby day on April 5th with the Roadkill Barbecue in Montgomery. If you go to that, you'll be able to see me there. That's an annual gathering of union and political folks. Uh, So make sure that your local union is sending somebody. And if they're not, maybe you can be that somebody. The North Alabama Labor Council has a barbecue that's been scheduled for April 22nd on Earth Day going to take place at Montesano State Park. So uh, if you're a union member, an ally, a working person here in the Tennessee Valley, come on down to Montesano. Uh, David has previously said we got to get that confirmation um, from him for this time, but I think it's safe to say we can anticipate some of David's barbecue and it's going to be great. Alabamians for Fair Justice is holding a lobby day on April 4th to advocate around criminal justice bills. The grand opening of the Automotive Free Clinic will be 1 p.m. on April 15th uh, on South Memorial Drive in Prattville, Alabama. Labor Notes continues with their online trainings. And with that, we're going to go ahead and head into overtime. Uh, Find us on YouTube and Facebook to continue listening. All power to the work.